We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. I'm going to ask you to turn your Bible tonight to the book of Acts again, this time in chapter 8. Excuse me, this time in chapter 8. I titled the message, Persecution in the Gospel, in Acts 8, the first uh, maybe half of the chapter or so, a little more than half. Let's see how far we get this evening. Persecution transported the gospel message to distant places uh, in Acts chapter 8, as we'll see, and one of those places was Samaria. Let's read a little bit, and then we'll dig in. It says in chapter 8 of the book of Acts, Now Saul was consenting to his death, and at that time great persecution rose against the church which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man named Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized Then Simon himself also believed and was baptized, and he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs which were done. Now when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus." Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of hands, I'm sorry, through the laying on of the apostles' hands, the Holy Spirit was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, Your money perish with you, because you thought that the gift of God could be purchased with money. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray, God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. 
For I see that you are poisoned by bitterness and bound by iniquity. Then Simon answered and said, Pray to the Lord for me that none of the things which you have spoken may come upon me. So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Um, This is an interesting portion. Uh, As I've said before, I like the book of Acts quite a bit. And uh, we continue our study in the early church here. Recall that the church was born at Jerusalem about A.D. 30, if we put a date to it. It grew to thousands of new believers in its first months, uh, 5,000 men besides women and children at least. It was caring for an increased number of uh, Greek cultured, Greek-speaking widows, and that became a challenge for the church. And then persecution came against the apostles. We saw that in Acts uh, 4 and 5 particularly. And then Stephen died due to that persecution rising to a fervor or a fury, we might say. And all these experiences, both of peace and growth and expansion and persecution and martyrdom all within the first few months of the church foretold the whole future of the church. You with me? The whole future of the church is just going to be the same way as the early weeks and months unfolded. And in fact, one of those ways is in terms of persecution. The uh, apostles took note of this and uh, even wrote about it from time to time. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 12, Paul said, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The Lord Jesus had uh, predicted this before it ever occurred in John chapter 15 and verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, he told the disciples, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, They will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And of course, uh, just later on in the book of Acts, chapter 9 and verse 4, the Lord Jesus himself uh, told Saul these words. It says on the road to Damascus, Then he, that is Saul, fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's Acts 9, 4. So we have a number of references there in the epistles and acts and in the gospels to persecution coming to the church. Saul rises to prominence here in a very bad way in uh, chapter 8. At the end of chapter 7, he appears almost kind of a cameo appearance in a, in a sense, although it's his first appearance, which wouldn't be a cameo. But um, it, it just kind of shows up there and he's just kind of off to the side, not in the main action, I guess. But uh, he was a primary persecutor of the church. He approved of Stephen's death, even though the trial was incomplete. The execution was not done lawfully. Uh, Remember, they didn't even have the right to put someone to death there because the Romans were in charge, but they did so anyway, just out of control, out of order, uh, terrible situation. Now, after the death of Christ, the Pharisees had held to a mediating position under Gamaliel's advice. Remember what Gamaliel said? Look, if this work is of men, it'll come to nothing. If it's from God, then you know, don't fight it lest you be found to fight against God himself. And so they kind of said, okay, yeah, well, we'll beat the apostles and we'll let them go, but we won't you know, do anything more severe to them. Um, 
but in, and in fact, later on, the same kind of mediating position uh, took hold in Acts 23, verse number 9, when Paul claimed to be on trial for this resurrection uh, in chapter 23 of Acts, verse number 6. He said, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead. I am being judged. And then there was a big fight that broke out between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You know, he kind of pushed the theological button that he knew he needed to push. You know, he got the Arminians going against the Calvinists, and uh, they forgot him for a second. And there arose a loud outcry, and uh, the Pharisees said, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So they kind of had this sort of mediating position, like, We don't agree with this guy, but he's not all bad. Um, in Acts 23, or, you know, these guys will just tolerate them, for, let them do their thing, maybe give them a warning now and again. But Saul was radicalized against this new sect. In verse 3, we see the opposition. He made havoc of the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Certainly, no restraint there like we would like to see in the, um, as an American citizen, would you say? Uh, no, uh, <laughs> no judge had to sign an order, no APB went out, no arrest warrant, uh, you know, no, um, you know, all that, sort of, no trial, nothing. Just get them and throw them in jail. I wonder how Paul ever thought that he would get rid of the church could he imprison 5,000 men besides women and children? And make no mistake, ladies here, women were not exempt from being persecuted. Can you imagine that? Not even for the fairer among us. Acts 9.2, Paul asks letters from the chief priest to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found anyone who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. This is a terrible situation, isn't it? So what happened? Well, there was a persecution here, as we've said, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Where would you go if you were in this situation? Far away from the Apostle Paul, I would guess, right? So like it or not, the disciples were encouraged to fulfill what the Lord told them in Acts 1.8. Remember that? You will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. Where next? Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. So if things weren't moving fast enough, Saul made sure that they were. Saul was the cause... He, he was a missionary later, but he was actually a, an impetus for missions right now in this state because he was driving Christians away from Jerusalem, scattering them abroad. Now, we, and we see in verse 4, they went everywhere preaching the word. They didn't stop telling people about Jesus. They didn't stop who they were just because they were being persecuted. God used fear for their lives and fear for freedom. 
and a desire for freedom as a motivator to move them out of Jerusalem and to the regions where the gospel had yet to go. So to the regions beyond, I must go, I must go. The song says, well, in this case, I must go because I'm being chased there by a persecutor. So they preach the word. Now I pray for us that we will be attentive to the Great Commission and obedient without having to have fear as our motivating factor. We want to honor God by faithful obedience to his word, and that includes the word of the Great Commission. Going, making disciples, baptizing them, and teaching them all things to observe according to what Christ has taught his disciples, taught us. Now, there is a little interesting note here. It says, except the apostles. They were not scattered. They stood their ground and stayed with the large church that was there. Their ministry apparently was, they felt more needful there to stand in and defend the church and to shepherd it and protect it and guide it and guard it. Maybe they were less targets after hundreds or even thousands of the Christians left town, but I'm quite sure that not all of them would have been able to leave town. Maybe the big church, because of the persecution, had to split in... um, multiple little uh, satellites, if you will. And so the, the apostles had responsibilities in all different parts of the city and around in the Judean countryside to uh, minister in the church, perhaps. We don't know for sure. It tells us in verse number two, another background of this situation, the kind of thing that launched this. Stephen was really the catalyst. He launched the church into martyrdom. And uh, he was buried by devout men, it says in verse 2. Now, we don't know exactly for certain who these people are. Uh, We would expect they were Christians. Perhaps there were other Jewish people that were devout. That's a phrase, devout, by the way, that's often used of God-fearing or of Jewish people that aren't saved people uh, in, in the Scriptures. But godly, you know, religious folk, Uh, And maybe so there were some Jews here or some unsaved Gentiles as yet that didn't agree with what happened to to Stephen. They could see where it was headed. If you could kill this guy, then you can kill lots of other people too. They made great lamentation, it says, verse 2. Now, before you get uh, up on your high horse and say, oh, they made great lamentation, they must not be very godly. I caution you because, as we've often said, Jesus wept. Making lamentation is not a problem. Making great lamentation is not a problem. Uh, There was a great mourning of the Egyptians that came when uh, Joseph's father passed away and they brought his body back to be buried in the tomb that was purchased from Hamor, the... uh, Field of Mach, or the cave of Machpelah, the field of Ephron the Hittite, and a great mourning for days and days and days and long embalming period and long mourning period. There's nothing wrong with mourning per se. Mourning is not inconsistent with godliness, but a certain kind of mourning, a certain kind of sorrow is inconsistent with godliness. A a kind of sorrow that is without hope is inconsistent with Christian principles. A kind of sorrow that is without end 
is inconsistent with the Christian faith. One that just goes on and on and on. Proper mourning is that which adjusts over time, does not continue unmanaged forever, and keeps in mind the hope that we have in God. As with any other emotion, mourning must be regulated. It cannot be let to go out of control. That's what Christian mourning is kind of fenced in by, if you will. It's not just allowed to run rampant and drive us into the ground, but it must be regulated, just like all of our other faculties must be self-controlled. Now, from Stephen being buried in lamentation over his body and his death, and Saul making havoc of the church. One of the Christians who left Jerusalem was one named Philip. Now, this is almost certainly Philip the deacon in Acts 6.5. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 8, it says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Well, in Acts 6, verse 5, they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, among the other of the first servants of the church. So, uh, and I think it's, we can back this up because it says earlier that the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. Well, the apostle Philip would have stayed in Jerusalem. This Philip left. And we note his ability to preach Christ and to do miracles. Both were God-given. Notice, first of all, his message. Philip's message was that he preached what? That's it. Christ. Simple. Preached Christ. Now, later on it said that Philip preached, verse 12, the things concerning the kingdom of God. So that's in chapter 8, verse number, what did I say, 12. So he preached the kingdom and he preached the name of Jesus Christ. But his focus was on Christ. Paul said, I determined not to know anything among you. Not, certainly not myself. I'm not preaching myself. We're preaching Christ Jesus the Lord. That's what we're about. The miracles were part of his method. So his message was Christ. His method had to do with uh, miracles that gained him an audience, that audience that believed he had uh, something to say. But there was a little danger in those miracles, and that is that they attracted not only the right kind of people, but they also attracted the wrong kind of people. So think about this now just for a moment, just kind of step aside from this portion in terms of a timeline. How does this visit that Philip made to Samaria fit with what happened in Samaria earlier? When did uh, somebody visit Samaria earlier before this? Did you say John 4? Yes, that's correct. Jesus himself visited Samaria with the disciples. That's where he said the fields are white unto harvest. Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, he told the disciples. He said, I have, I have food to eat that you know not of. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. 
and uh, he spoke to the woman at the well and uh, shared the, the message with her and that he was the Messiah and, and helped those folks to see uh, the Lord in his glory. That visit happened within the last three years, right? Because Jesus was alive within the last three years doing his public ministry. Many Samaritans believed in him then, but they didn't have the hindsight, benefit rather, of hindsight regarding his atoning work and resurrection. Now Philip can go back there and say, hey, remember that guy Jesus? Well, he actually died and rose again from the dead, and he's coming back to establish his kingdom. Would you turn to him in faith? Repent of your sin. Now, it tells us that there is great joy in that city. Why was that? Because of the miracles, the casting out demons, and the handicapped people were healed. And they listened to what Philip was saying, and they, they heeded what he spoke. And what he spoke was obviously Christ, as it told us in the kingdom and the things about Jesus. And so they believed that. They heeded the things spoken by Philip. Notice they didn't just hear and see the miracles and you know were loaves and fishes disciples. They heeded the things spoken by Philip. They, they heard they were sinners. They knew they needed the gospel of Christ. They responded to it favorably. This is the mark of, an, of a heart open to the things of God, a heart that's been opened by God, in fact. So often I w- I've been reading in the Minor Prophets because I'm going to teach a series on that beginning of next month and you, so often, over and over and over again, God calls to his people Israel, and what do they do? They ignore him. They don't hear him. They close their ears. They stop up their, their hearts. They turn away from God. They go after idols. And that's just a picture of what all people tend to do in their sin. So great joy came in the city, and uh, people there were saved. Church was born in that place as well. So now the gospel's gone from Jerusalem to Judea and out to Samaria. And then it's got one more big section to go to finish Acts 1.8, which it will get, we'll get to in a little bit here. Now, um, let's look at uh, Peter and John in Samaria, verses 14 to 17, and also verse 25. In the middle, there's a, a lengthy section about this guy... Um, the sorcerer, Simon. And we're going to let him alone for just a moment and first look at Peter and John in verses 14 to 17. So we'll jump down there after verse number 8. 14, it says, When the apostles who are at Jerusalem heard, then they sent Peter and John to them, and they prayed that they might receive the Spirit because they hadn't yet. So the benefit of getting Peter and John was that they were going to make an official link between Samaria and Jerusalem. The spread of the gospel to that place showed the unity of Jews and Samaritans in Christ. Now that is significant because it erases a huge sticking point that has existed for over 700 years between the Samaritans and the Jewish people. Remember in John 4, to go back there, the woman said, you know, you people say on, on uh, that, that mountain is the right place to worship. We, we worship over here in this mountain. And Jesus says, look, 
I'm telling you there's a time coming when it doesn't matter here or there. God's going to seek true worshipers to worship him. Those who worship him must do so in spirit and in truth. In effect, saying it doesn't matter where you worship at. It matters toward whom you worship, to whom you worship, where your worship is guided, and through whom it comes. It's got to come through the Messiah and on, on basis of his access to the Father. So he, the, this reconnects the Jews and the Samaritans and really washes out the great cultural divide that would happen, would have been between them and brings the, the church together in one universal or one international body. This is quite a, a thing that happened here. But I say that it, it, it's an official link because if, you know, Philip just went there as kind of a, 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 a you know, an independent contractor kind of evangelist, you know, and he's off on his own and they get saved, and then they, their church starts, and it flourishes, and the Jerusalem church starts, and it flourishes, and there's no connection between the two of them in any kind of official top-level capacity, then you have two churches that are just going to develop and, and kind of go off on their own. That typically happens, by the way, in churches that are separated, say, by race. This happened in South Africa, for instance. You had three different denominations of EBC churches, and they each developed along their own lines, and uh, one is a little more dispensational, and one is a little more charismatic-ish. And you know, and after that develops for fifty or sixty or seventy years, you've got three churches that have no no real connection between them. How do you get them back together? Well, because they've learned and and taught different you know forms of doctrine over all the years. Um, Tough to get them to come back together. So better, better to start right from the beginning, get them together. When they did this, they came down. The, there was a delay in the reception of the Holy Spirit in the church. Uh, there's a question here about the Samaritans' reception of the Spirit. Was it uh, delayed was it a typical delay or just a, a special case kind of delay? I take it that it was a special case delay. It was temporarily delayed, their reception of the Spirit of God, to accommodate apostolic participation, to make that official link between Jerusalem and Samaria in accordance with the Lord's command to be his witnesses in all those different parts of the earth. And this is one of those evidences that Acts is a transitional book. It doesn't always describe the way things always will be. It just describes things the way that they are or were at that time. So they received the Holy Spirit, a little bit delayed, but nonetheless they did. What about us? We're left in a question about our reception of the Holy Spirit. For the remainder of church history, after the early church, God's Spirit comes upon a person at the moment of salvation. No later. It's immediate, without tongues, without the laying on of hands, without any special ceremony. All true Christians have been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ, into Christ, and they've been all made to drink into one Spirit. That's speaking, I think, of the experiential aspect of it, uh, not just the kind of positional or legal aspect of the work of the Spirit at salvation. So, and you may, you may, you know, I, I, 
myself years ago, and you perhaps too, wonder, do I really have the Spirit of God? You know, I act like trash sometimes. I don't feel like I should sometimes. Do I have the Spirit of God? Well, if you've trusted in Christ, you do. You just may be at a very low ebb of spiritual vitality at the moment, but you need to get back in the Word and turn from any sin that you have and ask God to give you the joy of your salvation, and uh, you see what uh, God will do with that. Now notice, after this is uh, accomplished, it says in verse number 25, So when they had testified and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem. But notice on the way, what did they do? They preached the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. Isn't that great? So they went to this one, and this one village of the Samaritans launched them into all these other ones so that it became kind of a hub and spoke arrangement where they could touch all these other outlying villages of the Samaritans and say, your friends over there at so-and-so village received this message. Here's what it is, and, uh, and shared with them the gospel. Now, this was all brand new. Um, it was maybe something like what I was, uh, I was listening to a message by J.D. Crowley the other uh, day, uh, went to northeast Cambodia. There were virtually zero Christians there starting 25, 30 years ago. Now there are thousands of Christians there. Uh, it was brand new to them. A moving story, by the way, how he told that uh, one of the one of the girls in a family wanted to know about their creator God in this very animistic society. And the mother said, um, well, we, we, we can't know about that God because we have a stain that keeps us from that God. We, uh, we have to worship the demons and the ancestors and all of that sort of thing. And um, when the Christians came, they introduced this young girl and her parents to the Creator God and said, you can, in fact, know him despite the stain that's on your heart because of what Jesus did for you. And so that being brand new and God's Spirit already having worked in this young woman's heart, she became a Christian and she's been a Christian for the better part of a quarter century or so now and many others in that village and surrounding villages as well. I imagine that this was something like that. These people knew about God. They knew about the Pentateuch, they, but they didn't know how can our sins be forgiven. We don't have any sacrifice, really, uh, to the true God. Our, our sins are always coming back on us. And Well, they found out that God made one final sacrifice for sin, and uh, they were able to respond to that in faith and have their sins cleansed and forgiven. Well, so... I'm going to leave it right there for uh, this time. Next uh, time we get a chance, we'll have to look at Simon the Sorcerer and see a little bit more about him, and then we'll go on to uh, preaching to another person, an Ethiopian. So the gospel is going out to uh, faraway, faraway places, um, and it's encouraging. So may we see that if God can do that then in the first weeks and months of the church, he can still do that today, and I pray that he will. Heavenly Father, would you do that even through us if we could find uh, 
some Samaritans, some Ethiopians, some Corneliuses, some from faraway places, different places that are coming to the United States, coming to Ann Arbor, uh, or some of us may go to these other places. And uh, I pray that you would help us to carry the word with us wherever we go and with whomever we encounter. I pray, Lord, that um, you help us to be faithful to that. Thank you for these uh, examples to us, both modern day and also in this uh, ancient time. Watch over your people here, Lord. Would you protect them? Would you give them the desires of their heart? Lord, if they desire something godly, would you give that to them? And if their desires aren't quite up to snuff, would you change their desires so that they would be? Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.